Well, this morning, if you have a Bible, um, turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 3. And um, if you don't have a Bible, then um, just there are some at the end of your uh, rows there, and you should be able to uh, follow along uh, with us this morning. But this morning, we are going to, to look at this message, why we need a Savior. Um, really, it's all about Jesus. And, and when we consider um, the news of this last week, in the context of this message, why we need a Savior, um, I, I think that the backdrop of, of life, it, it makes us realize that if the hope that we have in Christ, if the message of the gospel, if um, our, our faith in God doesn't apply or if it doesn't hold on um, to, to Christ during times like this, then it doesn't work. Our, our faith works at all times. And it's important to know that when things like this happen, there are different feelings. I mean, I just, we were here at the office and, and when uh, the first news report started to come across, you know, it was kind of vague at first. We didn't know everything that had happened and then we started reading more news reports. And I'll tell you that it was anger for me mixed with sadness. And, and I think about that anger. Um, there, there was a righteous anger, I think, that happens when something like a tragedy occurs and we realize it shouldn't be this way. I think about Jesus when, when he wept. I, I look at Lazarus in John chapter 11. Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And because he knew that, he wasn't weeping because Lazarus wasn't coming back. He, I believe that he was weeping when he looked around and he saw Martha, he saw Mary, he saw Lazarus' sisters weeping. I think he saw the people mourning. I think that what Jesus saw was the consequences of sin. And we know that sin brings death. And so this morning, when, when we consider um, what has just happened, you know, it's with anger and sadness, and yet, at the same time, there is hope. I, I couldn't wait to get um, to the school to pick up my kids. I just wanted to hold them tighter. I just wanted to let them know I love them. Um, and I came across this article by one pastor who is a, a former police officer, and sometimes we don't know what to say, and you know, there are times when silence is okay. Um, he said, as a pastor, I've been asked why would a loving, all-powerful, ever-present God allow such a horrific act? My answer, while not very satisfying, is simply, I do not know. So he talks about being a police officer and seeing things like that and, and being witness to different things that have happened. And there are times when we don't know all of, of why. We don't understand those things. Sometimes silence is actually best when it's grieving with someone. Uh, there was one, um, one gentleman that... Uh, he wrote for the Huffington Post, and he's not a believer. But he talked about that when his son uh, died just a few months ago, and it was tragic, just a very small child, that many people were trying to give him just like quaint sayings and, and things like that. And someone actually told him, you know, God has a purpose in it. And as an unbeliever, it, it made me realize something. The context of the world that we reach out to, for me, that makes sense that I, I, I can trust God and his character. For someone that doesn't know the Lord, sometimes the best thing to do is be with them. Sometimes the best thing to do is to offer the hope, to point to Christ, but at the same time to weep with those who weep. See, we, we have hope. We have a Savior. We have the message of the gospel. And so this morning, um, the title of the message is Why We Need a Savior. And I think that in the context of this, it's, it serves as a stark contrast to what we experience today. See, we saw kids up here, and, and my kids, you know, for me and, and Deano, just, just watching them, looking at their, their answers on the video and how, how great that is. 
And it reminds us that the reason why we recognize that there's evil is because we know that things should be good. We talked about it a little bit last week. We, we recognize evil. In fact, for someone, that, for someone that doesn't have faith and doesn't believe in God, I think that the problem of evil is even greater. There are people that say, well, I can't believe in God because why would an all-powerful God allow this to happen? Why would an all-loving God? He's either not loving or he's not powerful. Which one is it? And yes, I don't understand on a, a given tragedy like this exactly why things like that happen. I know that, that it happened and God is there in the midst bringing comfort, that God doesn't, doesn't cause those things to happen. And yet, for the person that doesn't believe in God, then I, I think about how difficult life is, not making any sense of anything. For the person that doesn't believe in God, then, then I really think about natural selection. And, and death is just death, and this life is it. And, and if someone gets away with something, then they get away with something. And I'm not trying to minimize how people feel um, that don't believe in God. I, I know that sometimes there is that, that genuine um, questioning. But this morning, let's look at this tragedy and realize that there are some things that we as believers can do. We could be angry. We could be sad. There's times of silence and prayer. But for us as God's people, there's faith, hope, and love. There is faith. There is hope. There is love. In fact, when I think about this, that um, in the middle of what people are going through, whether it's them or us or any time we go through sorrow, we're not to fall prey to just fear and just sadness and just sorrow and just anger, but God calls us to pray. He calls us to have hope. And our hope, as the Bible says, does not disappoint because we look to Jesus, our Savior. Now, as we look to Jesus as our, our Savior, I think this morning it's important for us to realize the weight of the message that we have. Um, I, I think it's important this morning that primarily we understand that it's not about laws. Primarily, this is not about mental illness, and it's not about safety in schools, although those things are byproducts. I'll tell you what, it comes down to the problem is evil, and there is real evil in this world. And evil is not... It, sometimes people think of the devil as the guy with the horns and the pitchfork on, on cartoons... But I'm here to, to testify that God's word says that we have a real adversary, the devil. He goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so with the problem of evil, the devil comes, he's real. And also Jesus, our savior, is the one that reminds us that there's hope. I want to go to Genesis chapter three this morning. And as we look at this problem of evil, evil personified going all the way back to Genesis chapter three, we realize that up to this point in the Bible, it's only two chapters, right? And everything is good. Everything is, is as God intended it. There's no death. There's no sorrow. There's no sickness. In fact, if you pick it up with me at the end of Genesis chapter 2, it says that the Lord God caused a deep sleep. In verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. I think about the ultimate in creation, God's plan. Just imagine what that was like. Um, a husband and wife in total unity. At this point, they're in harmony. There's no shame at all. 
they don't know anything of guilt. There's no comparisons. They don't understand loneliness. They don't, they don't have any strife. There's no frustration. There's no isolation. There's no embarrassment. There's no death. This is what God intended. So when death happens, whether it's by um, an evil act or by natural causes, we grieve because we realize this is not what God intended. Now, I understand that all of us have this one-to-one ratio. We all live, and unless the Lord comes back before then, we're all going to die. And yet, it's important for us to realize that death is an intrusion, in a sense, in God's plan and what God had desired for us. See, when we get into Genesis chapter 3, we see this evil personified. We know that the devil is, is real, and it says it in verse 1, that the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now, the serpent was cunning. Ephesians 6.11 reminds us to put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles, it comes from the Greek word methodia, where we get method. And so what Paul the Apostle wrote to the Ephesians about, he said, put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes or the methods of the devil. When it comes to war and combat, whether it's spiritual or otherwise, it's important to know your enemy. It's important to know the strategy. So this morning, what is the strategy of Satan to rob, kill, and destroy? How does he desire to do that in your life, in the lives of the people that we love in this world? What are the ways that, that the devil tries to rob us from the life that God intended? Well, as we consider this in Genesis 3, the schemes of the devil, he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I believe that when it comes to Satan's schemes, the thief, the first thing is deception. The devil tries to deceive us, and one of the first things that he will try to deceive us about is to question God's goodness. So at a time like this, do we question God's goodness? And even when the devil comes to Eve, the temptation is, did God really say this? And is God really good or is he holding out from you? In fact, when you think about God's, um, God's reaching out to mankind, he's not restrictive. He's very open. He didn't tell Adam and Eve, there's a bunch of trees here. There's thousands upon thousands of trees and there's 500 not to eat of. He didn't say that there's a dozen He didn't say that there's three. He said that there's one. So not restrictive, but freedom. And that freedom is to be able to enjoy God's creation. But he wants us to worship him, and he wants us to put him first to say, God, you know what's best, and I choose to come under that authority, which they didn't. See, in the deception that we go through, and Satan comes to us and he says, God really isn't good, or God must not love you. Maybe like many of the people I talk to, you've thought before, I I can't go to church. The walls, I've heard this many times, the walls would cave in. The walls would fall down if I came to church. And I don't know if that's a lie that Satan gives to many people, but I've heard that from many people. I I would go, but man, if I came to your church, the walls would fall down. And see, behind that is the deception that we have to clean up our lives before we come to God. 
Behind that is the deception that says, well, first get your act together, then God will love you. And yet God loves us unconditionally. It's the equivalent physically of saying, hey, you know what? I need a car wash. I'm going to wash my car and washing your car and detailing it and then taking it to the car wash. And you clean it before you take it to get cleaned. So your car's dirty, so you take it to a car wash to get cleaned. And yet how many people do that with life? I'll come to God, but I got to clean up my life first. And God says, come as you are. The devil wants to deceive us. The devil says, you know, look at this pain that you're going through with this person that you loved that hurt you. You're going through a breakup of a relationship. You're, you're going through a friendship in which someone really hurt you and they betrayed your trust. And sometimes we could shake our fists at God saying, God, you must not love me because look at what I'm facing. Why are you punishing me? I lost my job. I found out that I'm sick. Why does God hate me? Why is God so against me? Because look at how my life is going. And I believe that when the enemy comes to deceive us in this way, that we fall prey to the, the schemes of the devil. Paul wrote this to the Corinthian church. Paul, who was not fearful of many things, said this, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. See, that complication of I have to do things, I have to change my life, I have to get things in order before I come to Christ. Now, granted, we don't have to figure everything out. There are things in this world that we don't understand, things that we don't know. If I understood everything, who would I be? I'd be God. And some people say, well, I can't come to God because I don't understand this, I don't understand that. If I understood everything, I would be God. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord. So there are some secret, th some things I don't understand. But then the second part of that verse says, but the things that are revealed, those things belong to us and our generations. See, God has revealed enough of himself so that we know that he's a God of love. He's revealed enough of himself to, to know that there is evil, but God is not for evil. See, the temptation comes to undermine or the deception comes to undermine God's word the next thing in verse 6 so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food that it was pleasant for the eyes or, um, that a tree was desirable to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate she also gave to her husband with her and he ate a second way that the schemes of the devil come against us is he tries to tempt us Temptation is just really another form of deception. And the deception says, if you give in, it will be worth it. And the consequences won't be that bad. And we know whenever we give in, it's never as good as we thought it would be. And the consequences are always worse. It doesn't last. But the lust of the flesh, it, it's good for food. We live according to the lust of the flesh in our world today. Many people just think, hey, if there is no God, then really we're like animals. If there's no God, we're, we're just like animals. I, there's, there's, no, um, there's no lion that hunts and, and kills a zebra and feels bad about it. There's no lion that is moping around thinking, I just, I just killed a zebra. Because it's just nature. It's survival of the fittest. And yet people say, well, there is no God. Then, then when we see things like this, if there is no God, then, then what about starvation what about homelessness what about sickness what about death what about all of these things see it reminds us that there is a god and things are not the way that they should be the temptation of the lust of the flesh is is this temporary thing of saying hey 
Whatever feels good, just satisfy the need for right now. Just do it. Just satisfy that, that flesh. The lust of the eyes. It says it was pleasant. The fruit was pleasant to the eyes. Covetousness. It's the commandment that took the commandments and made it internal. Thou shall not covet. See, covetousness is something that it's such a danger to us as believers because it's something that sometimes people can't see. Now, eventually, covetousness starts to come out when it's in the heart. It comes out in action. But you know what? You might not steal something, but no one knows if in your heart you're looking at what they have and saying, I want that to be mine instead of theirs. And in that temptation to the lust of the eyes, it's like when we give into it, um, Jesus said this, that the lamp of the body is the eye. Okay, but if your eye is dark or it's cloudy, then your whole body will be full of darkness. How do we get this darkness spiritually? It's by allowing ourselves to just go wherever our hearts and minds want to go. And we don't realize it. And it's like having the film on the windshield of a car. And you don't know that it's dirty until you clean it. And you go, wow, now I can see. Covetousness does that spiritually to us. The devil tempts us with the pride of life. It was desirable to make one wise. Remember that Satan's fall came because of pride. We want to be the master of our own destiny. Um, There's a song, I think it was Frank Sinatra that used to sing, I Did It My Way. And uh, it, it sounds great. It's a great song until you start listening to it. And it's about this guy that is so filled with pride. He's not going to buckle to anyone. No one's going to tell me what to do. I'm the master of my own fate. I'm the, I'm the captain of my ship. And sometimes we could think that way with God. And our pride says, God, your word says this, but I know better. Your word says to trust you in these things and to follow your commandments. But I know what's better for me. And that pride is very subtle. It doesn't necessarily look like someone that's bragging all the time or boastful. Sometimes pride is just being self-centered. It's this self-centeredness. It's this even a quiet, shy person can be filled with pride by being self-righteous and looking at other people or not even caring about other people. So when they gave in and they ate of the fruit in verse 7, it says, the eyes of both of them were opened. Then they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife, they hid themselves. Listen to this. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, this is not just in the book of Genesis. Today, people hide themselves from the presence of God all the time. I'll tell you what, even as a Christian... When sin um, comes in and, and we give in to the temptation, sometimes I just, I, I want to get away from God because the, the devil comes and the next scheme is condemnation. He says, go ahead, give in. It's no big deal. And it's going to satisfy and it's going to last. And then all of a sudden the consequences are there and the Holy Spirit begins to convict us of sin. But on top of that, Satan's name, one of his titles in the Bible is the accuser of the brethren. Then he says, look, you already blew it. You're not, you're a hypocrite. You're not real. You're not sincere. And if we ever look at people or Christians to say, well, God must not be real because there are hypocrites, we need to just look in the mirror and realize we're all hypocritical, right? 
there's senses in, in our own lives where the things that we do aren't, like Paul said in Romans 7, the thing I want to do, sometimes I don't do it. The very thing I don't want to do, sometimes it's the thing that I do. And when we do that, it causes us to, to want to run from God at times. Um, they made coverings. They put up a front. They put up masks. Uh, we could hide in different ways. We could hide in entertainment. I'll tell you, a, a great um, form of hiding from God is entertainment today. Enter, entertainment is king. It is the opiate of the people. It drowns us out from feeling conviction or guilt or caring about the world or seeing tragedy, and it's escapism. And I'm not anti-entertainment. I'm not anti-art. I'm not anti-these things. But I do realize that even these things that could be good can become a God thing when we use that thing to take us away from our hurt and our heartache and our pain and our difficulty. So why is it that people just kind of during times like that, they could just lose themselves in other things of entertainment. And by the way, when it comes to this condemnation, when we try to cover ourselves, we try to hide from God. Um, I've shared this story before when I was down in Southern California, when Deanna and I first got married, uh, we were serving on, a, on Halloween at our church. We did this thing called Camp Jubilee. It was this huge outreach where we'd have outdoor lights and we had stages set up and, and uh, we would invite people from the neighborhoods and thousands upon thousands of people would come. It was the biggest thing going on in, in the city. And so signing up to help and to volunteer, I just said, wherever there's a need, wherever there's a need, Deanna and I will, will do that. And so all of the booths got taken one by one. You know, there was Jonah, that booth got taken. And then there was, you know, Moses, the Ten Commandments, David and Goliath. And, and so they came to me and they said, Matt, there's a booth left and uh, we need someone to do that. And okay, sure. What is it? It's Adam and Eve. It's uh, the Adam and Eve booth. You know, it's creation. And, and so uh, Deanna, just being creative as she is, she went out and bought us flesh-colored long underwear. And then she made these felt leaves. And, and I, I could not believe I was doing it. And, and Deanna was like, come on, Matt. Like, what else aren't you going to do for God? You know, are you, not, are you not willing to do this? And so, okay, so, you know, I put these leaves, just feeling absolutely self-conscious and just praying that people handle it very maturely and spiritually when I end up getting to the church. Get out of the car, and the first person to see me is my brother. My brother's on the other side of the parking lot, and he gets to be a Roman gladiator. And so he's there with his breastplate and his shield and his sword, and he sees me. Oh, he just starts laughing, and he points to me, and everyone looks. Look at Matt. You know, look at Deanna. And he's saying, it's the Jolly Green Giant. And, he, you know, they're, they're calling. Yeah, I mean, it was just... It was just embarrassing. And so firsthand, I know that when we try to hide ourselves and make coverings, it doesn't work. And, and you know what? Sometimes we try to cover ourselves from God. We, we, try to, we try to ignore. Have you ever tried to ignore the sin in your life by talking to God, but not talking about that? It's kind of like the conflicts that you might have within your family. Um, you get together for holidays and there's probably some people that there's probably some arguments once in a while. We're all dysfunctional. And so you get together with them and then those are the, it's the elephant in the room that you just don't talk about. You act like it's not there. And yet we could do that with God. And yet we know that the Holy Spirit has convicted us. We know that, that we need to come to him. So the enemy will say, well, you already blew it. Just, just keep going. And you know what? That begins to, again, feed into pride. Um, in verse 11, 
when Adam had said uh, it was the woman, you know, it says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? In verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Notice in Adam's pride, he's not willing to simply confess that I sinned. He's not willing to simply say, I messed up. He's not willing to just say, I, I disobeyed, I rebelled against you. Instead, what does he do? In his pride, he blames his wife. And then he also indirectly blames God. He said, it was the woman. By the way, the woman that you gave me. See, sometimes when we sin, in our culture today, we blame our sin on everyone and everything except self. It's my background. It's how I was raised. It's where I was brought up. It's someone that hurt me. It's someone that did something to me. And, and don't get me wrong. I'm not taking for granted that our past has an effect on us. But when it comes to accountability, there's no one else to blame. I'm not going to stand before God and, and with all of these other people and blame them. It's just me and God. And there has to be an accountability for my own actions. And so pride comes in. The enemy also tries to distract and to try to divert the same way that Adam tried to divert the attention off of self. Some other things he could intimidate us. First Peter 5, 8 through 9, it talks about Satan and the devil being like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Have you ever heard a lion roar? I was at the zoo and we had this, there was this button that you could press and it's supposed to replicate what it sounds like when a lion roars. And it, as loud as it is with the subwoofers and the bass, it was not as loud as when the, the big lion with this big mane in the zoo, when he roars, you could hear it all the way on the other side of the zoo. The roar of the lion can cause us sometimes to be so intimidated, to just feel like I can't do it. And the roar sometimes comes more subtly by saying, you can't make it. You're, you're not going to make it in this Christian walk. You will fail. I was just talking to someone the other day, and that was his testimony. When he became a Christian, his biggest fear was he understood what that meant. He understood who God was, but the fear was, will I really be faithful to God? Will I really make it? And the roar of the lion comes in and says, you won't make it. Intimidation. And then there is anger and bitterness. Again, once we give in to sin, sometimes anger and bitterness, it begins to build. In Ephesians, it says that we're to be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. There is a righteous anger. Sometimes people say, well, you should never get angry. I don't, I don't see that in, in the Bible. But it does say to be angry and not sin. And then it says not to let the sun go down on your wrath. It says nor give place to the devil. I want you to think about if you have been angry at someone that has hurt you and you have not dealt with it, you didn't pray about it. You didn't talk to the person. There was no forgiveness. And you just went to bed and you slept on it. It didn't get better the next day. It started to grow a root. And then two days go by. A week goes by. Before you know it, sometimes decades go by. And that root of bitterness becomes a way that Satan can come and corrupt us. So with all of this against us, in this world in which we live, which we don't, Again, doesn't take much convincing to realize it's broken. We understand that we are under this curse. It says in verse 14, 
The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And I want you to notice that it's very significant that when it speaks of seed, we understand physiologically that the seed comes from the man. But all the way back in Genesis, this is pointing to the virgin birth. Jesus would come. There was going to be enmity between him and Satan. And Satan would strike at his heel at the cross, but Jesus would crush Satan's head at the resurrection and then eventually in the judgment. In verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, remember that whenever God um, corrects and judges us, whenever there are consequences, as a believer, ultimately, my sin was placed on Jesus on the cross. But in all of God's correction, it's redemptive, which means there's something that he teaches us. Like a good parent, if we, if we chastise our kids because we love them, we're trying to teach them something. We're not punishing them out of, anger or out of hatred it's because we want them to learn see adam was to be the servant leader of his wife but that authority was usurped as eve partook of the fruit and gave to adam also so how does this bring redemption in a marriage relationship that husband is to be the covering for his wife to protect physically emotionally spiritually it's not to say that there aren't some women that are much more spiritually fit than their husbands, but the roles are given that our faith would be in God's order and God's plan. And so we see that this happens here. And then in verse 17, then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And notice but thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So there's toil, there's thorns and thistles. In verse 19, in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of dust you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Thorns and thistles. Um, there's a, a line in Joy to the World. It talks about these thorns, these, these thistles. Um, by the sweat of the brow, men would work. And I want you to notice that the curse on Adam is not work. For any of you that have been unemployed and then you find a job, you know that work is blessing. You also know that before the fall, God told Adam to tend the garden. So he used to work the garden. This is before the fall. The curse is toil. The curse is thorns. The curse is, is that it would be by the sweat of his brow. Things would be hard. It would be difficult. Life would be hard. And it seems like there's always frustration in that work because things are not restored to its proper order yet. And God, God, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and he clothed them. Where did the tunics of skin come from? Blood had to be shed. God himself did it to provide the covering for sin, it says in the Bible that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And what God is showing all the way back in the book of Genesis is 
is really foretelling the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, who would die for all of us. In verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So from Adam until Christ, all of creation has been waiting. In fact, God so much desired for Adam and Eve not to remain in the state that they were in that he sent them out and guarded the way back so that they wouldn't partake of that fruit because it shows us that God doesn't desire for us to stay in this fallen state forever. Jesus came to be the light of the world. And yet in darkness, when Jesus came, we killed him. Now you think, well, maybe I didn't kill him. It wasn't me, it was, it was the Romans. It wasn't me, it was the religious hypocrites. It wasn't me, it was the Sanhedrin. It wasn't me, it was Pilate. It wasn't, and yet Jesus died for my sin and for your sin. So all of us, collectively, and then me individually, I put Jesus on. When Jesus went to the cross, it was not only for all mankind, but individually for me and for you as well. So when Jesus came to the cross, mankind rejected him. And so to this day, creation still groans to wait until he comes back again. And Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32, I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation. It says, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. The things that people blame on God. And yet so many times that evil was committed by a person. See, God did not pre-program us as Robotrons to all of a sudden um, just bow down in worship. There was a tree in the midst of the garden. There was a choice in it. A love relationship is two-way. And it says that he let them do, let them go in the way that they wanted to go. In verse 29, their lives became full of every kind of wickedness. Sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, gossip. They're all backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. They break their vows. They are heartless. They have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them also. So this morning... What breaks the curse? Here's this, here's this um, line of reasoning, this line of evidence that we live in a fallen world that's filled with evil and there is a, a real enemy and we've rebelled against God. So what breaks the curse if we are under this great curse? The cross of Christ is what breaks the curse. And the cross of Christ, it reminds us to live selflessly. Jesus said, if any of you desires to be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow after me. So think about this. Denying self is a little bit different than self-denial. Dan Gable, who is an incredible wrestler, 
that he went decades without a single loss, so driven, so motivated to win. That motivation at times to to be to have self denial, we could we could do that for a season because of something that we want. Denying self would be, God, whatever you want me to do, and if you want me to stop wrestling, I'm willing to stop wrestling. See, there's a difference. Someone can say, Well, I'm just gonna I'm gonna go into this self denial. I'm not gonna eat these foods. I'm gonna stay away from these things. And so many times they could just be self based, and yet. Denying of, of self means, God, whatever you want is going to be first. Uh, a friend of mine named Jeff, who uh, he has a sound studio. He plays the guitar. He was the worship leader. He is the worship leader over in Calvary Chapel Gilroy. There was a season in which his music became such a part of his life that, that God told him, and he felt like God said, I want you to serve me in ways outside of worship. So I want you to hang up your guitar and for about a year, he didn't play the guitar at all. Because for him, it was, it was this thing that, and again, I'm not saying that's how it is for others, but for him, music became almost an idol in his life. And so even though he had trained and he had worked so hard and, and all of these things, see, denying self means I'm willing to do whatever God wants me to do. That's what the cross of Christ, he shows us that example. It's what we could do in response. You know what the resurrection of Christ tells us? It tells us to live redemptively. See, um, in John 10.10, 10, it says that the thief comes only to rob, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and life more abundantly. Our life comes by his curse. Jesus hung on a tree. It says in Galatians, cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. So Jesus took my curse upon himself. And just think about this this morning as we, we close thinking about what breaks this curse. What was the curse? By the sweat of your brow, you'd have to work. What did Jesus do in the Garden of Gethsemane? He sweat drops of blood. When you work, it will yield. The ground is going to yield thorns and thistles. When Jesus went to the cross, what was placed upon his head? It was thorns that were placed upon his head. When Jesus was alone, I think about loneliness and isolation, separation from God. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of our curse was placed upon him. But the resurrection reminds us to live redemptively, pointing towards the future and realizing that for now, Jesus has paid the penalty for me, but the resurrection proves that this life isn't an end in and of itself. I'm going to have a video um, shown here. And, And as we consider this video, it's going to point us towards the future. We could turn out the lights and, and, um, and then I'll come up with just a closing word and have the worship team come up. But this morning, may we soak in the words. May we, we read this and, and listen to it and, and watch this and realize that all of creation is groaning for our Savior, our King, which is the Lord. So let's go ahead and roll this video.
worship, knowing he was holy no matter what the situation, but they longed for him. They yearned for him. They waited for him on the edge of their seats, on the edge where excitement and containment meet. They waited. Like a child watches out the window for their father to return from work, they waited. Like a groom stares at the double doors at the back of the church, they waited. And in their waiting, they had hope. Hope that was fully pledged to a God they had not seen, to a God who had promised a king, a king who would reign over the enemy, over Satan's tyranny, they waited. And so it was centuries of expectations with various combinations of differing schools of thought. Some people expecting a political king who would rise to the throne through the wars that he fought, while others expecting a priest who would restore peace through the penetration of the Pharisees' facade, yet... A babe, 100% human, 100% God. And so the word became flesh and was here to dwell among us in his fullness, grace upon grace, Jesus. You see, through him and for him, all things were created and in him, all things are sustained. God has made himself known for the glory of his name. And this child would one day rise as king, insurgent regime it would be by his life. A life that would revolutionize everything the world knew. He would endure temptation and persecution all while staying true. Humbly healing the broken, the sick and hurting too. Ministering reconciliation turning the old to new. A life that would be the very definition of what life really costs saying, if you desire life then your crown must be lost and you would portray that with his own life as his father would pour out and exhaust and he would be obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. And so just 33 years after the day that he laid, swaddled in the hay, he hung on a tree, suffocating, dying in our place, absorbing wrath that is rightly ours, but we can never bear the weight. And so he took that punishment and he say that he died, what I mean is that he died. There's no breath, there's no heartbeat, there's no sign of life. You see, God is a God of justice and the penalty for our sin equals death. That's what Christ did on the cross. And then just three days later, in accordance with the scriptures, he was raised from the grave. And when I say that he was raised, what I mean is that he was raised. Lungs breathing, heart pumping, blood pulsing through his veins. The things that he promised were true. He is the risen son of God, offering life to me and you. Turning our mourning into dancing, our weeping into laughing, our sadness into joy. By his mercy we are called his own. By his grace we will never be left alone. By his love he is preparing our home. And by his blood we sing before his throne that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. So now we, as his bride, are the ones waiting. Like the saints that came before us, we're anticipating. He has shown us that this world is fading, and he has caused our desire to be for him. And so church, stay ready. Keep your heart focused and your eyes steady. Worship him freely, never forgetting. 
So as we have the worship team come up, the second coming of Christ reminds us to live with expectation. It reminds us to live with hope. Until the second advent of Christ, we wait, not passively, but actively, hopefully, and faithfully. The resurrection is the promise not only of the end of grief, it doesn't just stop, but the joy that works itself backwards to make the past hurts and pains of life bring even greater joy and glory in light of it. Like the child that's reunited with his mother when he's lost in the department store, the comfort of being reunited is even more cherished. So we're going to worship the Lord. When we sing Christmas carols, when we sing worship songs to God, it's not just a pipe dream, it's not just a hope that is like the world's hope that don't know Christ. Our hope is in Christ. And if you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is your opportunity to understand the world makes sense in light of who God is. It's not a religion. He doesn't give us 10 steps to happiness. He says it's one step. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And that way that was guarded right back to the Garden of Eden, right back to paradise, Jesus said, I am the way. He took that spear to his side, that flaming sword in a sense that pierced through him, opened up the door for me and you back into fellowship, back into reconciliation with the Father. In the Christmas carol, Joy to the World, the third verse, not very well known, expresses it well. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. So the curse was found this week in Sandy Hook in Connecticut. Let's grieve with and pray for those that are hurting, but let's call the world what it is. It's broken. Let's recommit ourselves to living for Jesus and for others. That's the gospel. That is the hope that we have. And people, please, this morning, just hear this and know this and hold on to this. We have the hope that the world needs. We have the message, the only place they're going to get that through God's word, the only, the only one that offers the hope to change the world from the inside out, a person from the inside out. If you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, I implore you, I beg of you to come to Christ. You might not understand everything about that, but just come as you are. Don't go and get your life all cleaned up and think that you could do that and then come to God because it'll never work. You come as you are. And I also want to share, maybe if you've been far away from God, and this Christmas time is hard for you because it seems like it's all a facade. You know what? It's where your heart is today. It's receiving redemption, grace, love, forgiveness. It's being able to share that hope with others. So let's pray. And if this is your prayer, you want to receive Christ, then repeat after me right where you are. Because it's a prayer of faith. It's not a magic mantra or a formula. It's my heart being knit towards God, saying, God, I want you in my life. I need you to change my life. You are my hope. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you sent Jesus to die for me. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And Lord, as you offer this gift to me, I receive it. I receive it not because I deserve it. I receive it not because I've earned it. I receive it because I need it. And because you are good and loving to offer it. 
And I pray that you would come into my life, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, that you would forgive me for my sin, and that you would use me to tell the world about the hope that is in Christ. And then, Father, for those of us that have already received Christ as our Lord and Savior, Lord, may we sing now with rejoicing in our hearts, God. May we sing in faith. May we worship you in in spirit and in truth. Because, God, you have shown us the way, but then you also laid down your life to provide the way. So we rejoice in that. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's worship.